0: During these tumultuous times, I'm not sure if it's good news or bad news to have Peter Turchin on the (laughs) podcast, uh, one of the most interesting social scientists of our age.
1: Your models predict that we're probably in some sort of end times right now. Well, in fact, that
2: prediction was published uh, 13 years ago. Mm -hmm. And the purpose of this prediction was not a prophecy of doom. Rather, it was a scientific prediction.
0: Goldie, during these tumultuous times, uh, I'm not sure if it's good news or bad news to have Peter Turchin on the <laughs> podcast, uh, one of the most interesting social scientists of our age, uh, a, a, you know, a person that I know you and I both greatly admire, uh, who has infused the study of history with approaches and insights from other fields, uh, like uh, you know, sci- scientific fields, uh, for more than a quarter of a century, um, and, and you know, talked to him about his new book, End Times, Elites Counter elites and the path of political disintegration, <laughs> because we're seeing <laughs> just a lot of political disintegration go on right now. But you know, we've we've been watching and reading Peter's work very carefully: uh, "War and Peace," and "War: Ages of Discord," and other books.
1: Uh, ultra society, yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and he's just a fascinating guy who has applied complex systems analysis to history and. It's super interesting, but it is very depressing uh, because
1: the- really, you think you think a book titled "End Times" is depressing? <laughs> yeah. uh, no, let's be clear. He's talking about now. <laughs> yeah,
0: right. So, yeah, and you know, Peter, I think in a much more sophisticated way is predicting the kind of doom that you know we've been predicting for a long time, and w- which, in fact, why we named. The, the, the podcast, Pitchfork Economics, that right. if, you, if you make, is in his words, if you immiserate the majority of citizens by making the society radically unequal, uh, really terrible things will happen to everybody.
1: And and that's that's the main thesis of yeah. your 2013 the pitchforks are coming for us Plutocrat's right. piece which is that n- you look at history and yeah. and no time at no time does this sort of rapid and rising extreme inequality end yeah. in anything but a revolution or a police state it's one yes. or the other Yeah which isn't good for for you, plutocrats. Anybody. No, it's not generally, good for anybody, especially not out. the revolution part.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so, with that, let's let's talk to let's talk to our old friend Peter.
2: I am uh, Peter Turchin. I am a complexity scientist who studies complex human societies, both how they evolved and also why do they periodically break down. I am retired from the University of Connecticut and now I have a position as project leader at Complexity Science Hub in Vienna. And my latest book is End Times, uh, that the one we'll be talking about. And it actually explains the different types of results that you got by, by the historical analysis of uh, past societies sliding into crisis, but also emerging out of it.
0: Peter, we're going to start with two questions. The first is, can you give our listeners a general, a general explanation of your approach to history and uh, social
2: systems? Of course. History is a wonderful discipline. It requires from its practitioners uh, quite a lot of expertise. However, traditional historians have, are not scientists. They do provide explanations for why, did, why different events happened or not. For example, the collapse of the Roman Empire. But unlike science, they don't test their hypothesis with data. And that is what Cleodynamics, uh, the new discipline that started about 20 years ago, aims to supplement. So we are not trying to replace history we need historians because they provide the bulk of data. But what we are trying to do, we're trying to bring the scientific method. So one uh, German historian has uh, enumerated the list of hypotheses about why the Roman Empire fell. His list includes more than 200. And since then, even another dozen or two have been proposed. So what's been happening in history, it's that explanations multiply But there is no process that would weed out worse explanations in favor of better explanations. And that's what we do.
0: Interesting. And what kind of data do you do you use?
2: Any kind of data that is um, relevant to testing theory. So think about it. So let's suppose you want to understand why societies periodically get into trouble. Right. So, uh, we want to quantify this process. We can quantify it in a variety of ways. Uh, So, for example, when a society is in crisis, what are the demographic effects? Uh, For example, what proportion of population might actually disappear due to a variety of sources? Is there political fragmentation? Is the ruler uh, deposed or assassinated? And so on and so forth. There are multiple dimensions along which a society can crumble. So what we do, we capture data on all those dimensions. That's our response variable. That's what we're trying to explain. Now, a number of different theories propose explanations for why uh, this crisis happened. And uh, some theories evoke what happens to the population, population imaginations. Others talk about other issues and so on and so forth. So these are predictors. We need to gather data on predictors. For example, population immiseration. How can we measure it? Well, we measure it by whether the standards of living are stagnating or declining by using measures such as economic measures of well-being, wages, real wages, or social aspects of well-being, or biological ones, for example, life expectancy, and things like that. So then uh, in the analysis, different theories propose different explanations. And in the analysis, statistical analysis, formal statistical analysis, we test all those different theories and find out what are the factors that play the most, the greatest explanatory role. The idea is that uh, a true theory can uh, predict uh, data that was not used in its building better than false theories. And that is how we uh, decide which theories are more empirically adequate and which are less. And that's how we, by small steps, approach uh, understanding of why things happen the way they do.
1: And so uh, let's get to specifically to the book. Your data and your models predict that we're probably in some sort of end times right now.
2: (laughs) So, um, well, in fact, that prediction was published uh, 13 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What, where did it come from? So, as I mentioned, Clio Dynamics, by the way, the name uh, is a combination of cleo, the use of history and dynamics, the science of change. So um, uh, about 20 years ago, I was uh, studying past societies, happily applying this uh, scientific approach. And we noticed that there is a very strong recurrent pattern. Complex societies organized states, which appeared about 5,000 years ago. They can go typically for some good periods of time when they uh, they, uh, profit from the internal peace and order and uh, generally uh, broad uh, spread well-being. But those integrative periods, good periods, they typically last about a century, sometimes less, sometimes more, depending on the characteristics of the society. And then, some in the past, inevitably uh, the integrative periods uh, at some point turn into these end times, these integrative uh, periods. And so, uh, people, when I would re- report uh, these findings for past societies, and this was for all the societies for which we could get good data on instability, right, uh, quantitative data on stability, we see this. Recurrent pattern uh, repeating, so people kept asking me at seminars. Well, okay, where are we? And so I decided to look into the United States, the society which I know from inside, and to tell. And it takes time to get this type of data, but to to be truthful, I was appalled when I actually saw the data because the data uh, showed unambiguously that we were by two thousand seven or eight, we were well on the road to crisis and that turning point was during the late 1970s we can talk about yeah. the specific variables in a moment but what i just uh, when i did that i uh, uh, published the prediction in 2010 in um, the journal nature and the purpose of this prediction was not uh, not a you know prophecy of doom all right rather it was a scientific prediction Remember that we want, we, we test theories by their ability to make predictions. And there is nothing more difficult, as you, the said, than predicting about the future. All right. And that's why I published this prediction, not fully expecting that it would be uh, fully fulfilled. Furthermore, this prediction does not have uh, individuals such as Donald Trump or anybody. I have no inkling who Donald Trump would be. But it talks about a generic class of uh, counter-elites. We can talk about that in a moment. All right. And so what happened in the next 10 years was every time we'd give a talk, I would say, my God, we are on the same trajectory towards crisis. And of course, 2020, especially January 6th, 2021, um, uh, pretty much uh, dawned on everybody that the United States was in crisis.
0: And so would you say just a bit more about your general perspective on the evolution of societies? Because you've, you've, you've talked about it obliquely, but just state your basic thesis.
2: Well, my basic thesis is that, first of all, it's a very interesting question. How come the majority of humans, 99.9% live in large scale uh, societies organized as states? All right, except for some few tribes in Amazonia. That is a novel thing. For 97% of our evolutionary history, we lived in small scale societies and then beginning 10,000 years ago, but especially 5,000 years ago, the first states appeared and they took over the world. So that's the first big question and that is the one which I spend a lot my team, spend a lot of time uh, trying to understand, collected huge amounts of data and tested theories. But then also, as I mentioned earlier, as you study the dynamics of past societies, we see uh, that there is this, it's not a cycle, it's not a mathematical cycle, it's not precise, all right? And in fact, we know why it's not precise, because we know, in my book I explain why some societies are on the fast on the fast cycles, others are on the slow cycle, and so on and so forth. Right, so the next question was uh, precisely why uh, do uh, complex societies periodically break down, and that's where uh, we have we are. That's uh, that's the focus of uh, my group's current research.
0: And the the thing that leads to the breakdown is what you call the I mean, what we call inequality, what you call the wealth pump and elite overproduction. Basically, the you know the, the society becomes top heavy effectively and tips over.
2: Uh, inequality, to me, that's not a driving force. Inequality is a good proxy. When growing inequality tells us that uh, we are, what, what's happening is that the basic mechanism producing cycles, I call it the wealth pump. The wealth pump, this perverse wealth pump that pumps uh, the riches from the poor and gives them to the rich. Alright, the action of this mechanism can be measured uh, by the proxy of uh, different types of inequalities, but the actual drivers are three. So maybe this is a good time for me to explain them. Well, first of all, um, what happens is that you get pop- uh, population immiseration. So in the United States, we've seen uh, the real wages stagnate and, in fact, uh, decline for many. Uh, chunks of population such as the two-thirds of the population without college degrees. Now, this is the most obvious uh, driver for instability because it creates a lot of discontent and um, the, this discontent uh, takes the form of, uh, well, in the past, this would be like peasant rebellions, for example. You like you uh, like to talk about pitchforks, all right? Yeah. So that's uh, that's what we would see. The popular discontent would take Uh, the form of what Tyler uh, rebellion in um, 14th century England or some similar uh, rebellions elsewhere. However, by themselves, that popular discontent and we call it mass mobilization potential, to use the technical language, is not enough to tip a society into uh, into full blown crisis because you know think about what Tyler uh, Rebellion the armored and uh, knights uh, mounted and armored knights just had no problem killing off those uh, peasants and uh, you know chasing them away today uh, if you look at riot police the state is uh, can be very strong and and uh, an armed rebellion against the state really uh, and well thankfully actually has no no prospect for success so you need other ingredients and these are the other two drivers the other two uh, drivers are first of all the money that go that uh, the pump uh, moves from one sector of this population to another has to go somewhere where it does go it goes to the economic elites and that's what we see in the United States over the past 40 years the number of uber wealthy, let's say people who have 10 million or more of wealth, this this numbers increased tenfold, right? The population grew by 40 percent, but the number of deca-millionaires increased tenfold, and the same thing we see: there are more billionaires uh, at the top end, and there are more millionaires, uh, mere millionaires at the bottom, and. Now, on the one hand, you might say that, well, this is so nice and peach after all, isn't that what uh, the American version of capitalism shouldn't do? And uh, that's fine and peachy for the 1% and 1% of 1%. But why is it uh, bad, uh, even discounting the fact that the rest of the population is immiserating? Why is it a danger for the society? Well, overproduction of wealthy elites has uh, in it the seeds of the conflict because many of these newly wealthy people, they want to translate their economic power into political power. They either run for office themselves, like Trump or Bloomberg or Stephen Forbes un- unsuccessfully, or they uh, run uh, candidates, they fund candidates. And so as a result of that, this wealth, extra wealth, is translated into the surplus of Uh, political uh, aspirants. The field becomes much larger, but the number of positions is still the same. And as a result, competition intensifies. Some competition is good, but excessive competition corrodes the structure of the society. I use uh, the game of musical chairs in my book to explain this. Just imagine that instead of uh, taking chairs away after each round, round, you uh, merely add more players. So you start with 11 players and 20 players and 30 players, same 10 chairs. So you can imagine uh, the potential for chaos. Somebody is going to start breaking rules, all right? You can easily right. translate this uh, um, <laughs> abstract idea into practical examples. And then the break, uh, rule breaking spreads. So the, the, the game of musical chairs, right, as, mm-hmm. as you increase the number of players, Uh, massively, two, three, four times. And remember, we have 10 times as many uh, wealthy people, uh, people with uh, large amounts of wealth. Not all of them, of course, are going to uh, turn into political aspirants, but some will. And that's why we have a surplus of such um, uh, aspirants. And then many of them become frustrated. And as they are frustrated, some proportion of those will turn into what we call, uh, in the theory, counter elites. These are people who are driven not necessarily by materialistic things, because they perceive the whole system as unjust, right? Because here are very smart, uh, good people, but they are frustrated in getting ahead. The system is clearly unjust, so their proximate motivation is often the struggle against injustice.
1: So, so, so as a good example, you can see this happening right now. Uh, over the past 40 years, as you said, the number of the super-rich elites have increased tenfold, whereas the number of seats in Congress has remained completely stagnant. And so, right now, as we're recording this, the uh, we have this fight in the house over uh, who the next speaker will be, and you see all the norms and all the functionality decaying right before our eyes.
2: Yes, precisely. In fact, we can think, and I, in the book, I explain that you can think of the uh, new populist uh, right wingers uh, in within the. Republican Party as a kind of dissident elites, right? They're trying to take over that party. So it's not a violent revolution like Bolshevik Revolution or French Revolution. It is a revolution which is played out in the legal and uh, public uh, space. So this is a very good example.
1: And I know you've mentioned this, the lawyers are always the most dangerous when it comes to revolutions.
2: (laughs) Yes, precisely. So Lenin um, was a lawyer, uh, Castro, and uh, let's see, uh, Robespierre, of course. Uh, (laughs) uh, And also, um, uh, also Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer. And we can think of the American Civil War, it was often called the Second American Revolution, and certainly resulted in the overthrow of one ruling class, and replacement of it by another.
0: And what's the third factor, Peter?
2: Okay, so the third factor uh, is also, uh, can be called overproduction of elites, but these are lower rank elites. So think about it. The uh, general immiseration of the population creates a feeling of precarity. When people live uh, always on the edge of some kind of a disaster, perhaps medical disaster, Or even sometimes uh, people cannot even get enough food uh, in in a particular day. So that creates a strong push factor for people to escape precarity. Now, if you don't have wealth, how do you escape precarity? Of course, you get some kind of a uh, degree. So first you go to college, but now college is nothing. So then you go and get some advanced degree. And that's why we've had a huge overproduction, especially of law degrees. Uh, we have curr- We are currently producing three times as many lawyers as there are uh, positions for them. All right. And now the situation is going to become even worse because there are other factors such as technology. With the spread of AI, such as chat GPT-4, there are estimates that one half of law jobs will be replaced by the machines. So we will be overproducing lawyers uh, by a factor of six to one right and so that uh, results in the huge numbers of uh, people who are frustrated in their ambitions and that is the very um, uh, that's the medium which uh, breeds uh, counter elites all right so we are it is not just lawyers we are all producing uh, phds even in the stem uh, fields uh, remarkable as it may sound and especially, but of course, the worst overproduction is in the, the humanities fields, and that's where we have uh, huge. That's na- me. Yeah, exactly. So he, <laughs> I, he. I was
1: a history major. Yep.
2: History, English, you know, uh, education. Uh, all of those people are usually overproduced, and that's the breeding ground for radical movements. That has been the the, the case before. So, uh, the, in the the Bolshevik Revolution was not accomplished by the peasants or workers. It was accomplished by counter-elites. What happened there, I talk about this more in more detail in the book, but the very successful reforms of the 1860s uh, produced um, uh, an, uh, an unanticipated side effect. Most of the nobility became very impoverished, and they went into the universities, And that's what basically created those radical movements. And so this is what we are doing, and this is what happens in Europe as we speak, has been happening for the last about uh, two decades, getting worse and worse. So this is the third. So three together, popular immiseration, overproduction of people with wealth, and overproduction of degree holders, right? Together, that's an explosive combination.
1: You've described my role in this. Nick, I'm a counter-elite. Uh, But you don't mention me by name in the book. You do, however, mention Nick. Explain his role in this.
2: (laughs) Well, um, if we start thinking about... Now, let's start thinking about how do we get out of this, all right? Right. And here, let me just say that um, what we found is that um, the road to crisis is actually fairly generalized. It's like um, a ball running a valley with steep walls there's not only one place for it to run. But once you get to crisis, the whole avenue of possible trajectories open up for you. That's actually a good thing. When, uh, from the science point of view, it becomes very unpredictable. So science is not terribly helpful uh, here, at least uh, science at the, uh, at the current stage of development. And by the way, as an aside, we are building CrisisDB, which has now nearly 200 cases of societies getting past societies getting into crisis and out, and our hope is that by having more data, we would be able to discern the patterns better. But for us right now, the hopeful hopeful lesson is that it is possible to get out of crisis without uh, major bloodshed. Unfortunately, only about 10-15% of societies getting into past crisis were able to find this route. But now, hopefully, we know more if you should be able to, uh, to do a better job. All right. So um, one thing that we see in success stories, uh, the thing that, uh, that essentially um, makes them uh, similar to each other is that there are always a prosocial section of the elites who manage to persuade the rest of the elites using the popular discontent right, that we uh, we'd either uh, have reforms from above or we'll have revolution from below. That's precisely what Alexander II said, the Tsar of Russia, who, was, uh, who engineered the great reforms during the 18- 1860s and postponed revolution by 50 years as a result. All right. So here comes Nick, and uh, Nick is not perfect, uh, but um, he—I uh, use <laughs> him. I, I can I can vouch for that. <laughs> but I use him as an, as a representative of the pro-social elites who understand the problem and try, are trying to persuade the rest of them. Unfortunately, as I see up until now, not without huge success, that we need to reform the society. But uh, even on the local level, uh, for example, working for increasing the minimum wage in the state of Washington, that was a a great accomplishment, because that's one of the ways uh, to uh, not maybe shut down the wealth pump, but make it less powerful, minimum wages. Well, the others are ability of workers to organize and uh, bargain, uh, higher taxes on the rich, and uh, many other factors. But one has to start somewhere. So, in the past, when we look at successful case studies, they were always initially a minority that uh, eventually persuaded the majority to uh, that uh, that we better take the reform route out of the crisis.
0: And Peter, I think you have said that inequality is not is the is the proximate cause. It's not the cause of the problem. But do do you agree that? really the only path out of this crisis is a radical reduction of inequality, the de-immiseration of most people.
1: That's one of two paths, Nick. One of them <laughs> is a violent uh, no, 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 rebellion no, like, in which the but... <laughs> we we deal with the problem of elite overproduction by getting rid of elites. Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah exactly. <I> <laughs> Sometimes physically, in some of these cases, yes. elites are <laughs> exterminated.
0: Yeah, I was trying to avoid yeah. that. That that plant door door B is not as pleat peeling to me as door A.
1: Yeah, I know you see yourself now as Tsar Nicholas because Czar Alexander. <laughs> yeah. You see yourself as Tsar Alexander because you made the same argument he did, but you could be Czar Nicholas. I could. Yeah. <laughs> Which makes me Rasputin.
2: Alexander II was assassinated by a radical uh, party. Oh, that's true. So don't, don't I forgot. Go, don't, you know, I, hope, <laughs> I hope nothing like this happens.
1: <laughs> you know what? It's never a good idea to look to Russian history. No, <laughs> yeah,
0: it's a lot of bleak, a lot of bleak <laughs> outcomes there.
2: <laughs> Very good, good lessons to learn, though.
0: Yeah, yeah, but just being serious, uh, you know, I think that, uh, and I hope you agree that. Radically reducing the amount of inequality in the society is not a guarantee out of this mess, but it is almost certainly the best path available and the most practical path available for us.
1: Right. Turning off the wealth pump. And you point out in in the book, Peter, that the U.S.
2: has done that once before. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. So, okay, uh, let's talk about this. I have three comments to make. First of all, I think that uh, exclusive focus on inequality is not very helpful because uh, common people who are not quants, they actually uh, cannot relate inequality numbers to uh, their real life. Uh, People uh, always, always hugely underestimate the degree of inequality. So inequality is an abstract thing. That's why I think that we should turn to the popular immiseration. We have to reverse popular immiseration. That's also uh, sounds like an abstract thing. But what we want to do is to get the growth of uh, real wages to go up together with GDP per capita. This is, it, this is what uh, the New Deal accomplished, ac- actually. And so until late 1970s, uh, the wages and GDP per capita grew together, and then they departed, and the gap is what creates the wealth pump. So if we yeah. shut down the wealth pump, if we get the wages to grow together with uh, the economy, with the rest of the economy... Then, uh, first of all, we uh, we uh, decrease the immigration, we increase the well-being, the economic well-being of people. Secondly, it will have the effects on uh, sociological measures of well-being. So we know about deaths of despair. I talk about it in the book, right? So by giving people hope, and also the feeling that they are that they, their life is improving for them, right? That's the important thing. Um, we, uh, we will ameliorate those things. And we also shut down the wealth pump and stop the overproduction of uh, wealthy people. Uh, that's the second uh, point. The third point uh, that I want to make is that we should do this, but we should not expect immediate results. Thereof, well, First of all, it will take time to persuade the other elites. We, in all the success stories, uh, you know, for example, another success story was the chartist period in Great Britain. It took like 30 or 40 years to actually ac- accomplish the necessary reforms and shut down the wealth pump. All right, hopefully it will take, um, it will be faster uh, in um, our case if uh, we are successful, right? But uh, just don't expect immediate results. Secondly, social systems have a lot of inertia, even uh, we, I have in fact ran some models. Uh, which we can show that even once you shut down the wealth pub, it will take uh, multiple years, more than a decade, for these effects to percolate and have an effect on instability. So we should be thinking about all these processes in the long term. So what what does this say? About our short-term future,
1: uh, I know you've uh, talked pessimistically about 2024, about the prospects for 2024. What's it? Well, tell me honestly, do you? You are not
2: worried about 2024?
1: I think liberal democracy is facing an existential crisis. That's what I think right now. That that's how I feel. It's never been so.
2: It's never been so fragile.
0: We're in violent agreement. So
2: there is nothing we can do about 2024. uh, Certainly not I. And not even uh, you guys. So uh, in a way, uh, here this is uh, doom, basically, <laughs> right? Uh, that's what that's the way I, I see it. I hope that I'm wrong because I'm by nature I'm a, I'm an optimist. Uh, so my personal uh, thinking about it, we, there is nothing uh, I or we can do for the short term. So, but we need to start working for the long term now, all right? And so we need to get the idea. Let's forget about inequality. Let's get the idea that uh, people's lives should improve with every generation. That's uh, what uh, Americans experienced prior to 1980s or so. All right, so we should get back on track. People, each um, uh, the children should live better than their parents. All right, how do we accomplish this? Um, this is, this is, uh, becomes a uh, problem for uh, politicians working together with um, opinion um, uh, influencers and scientists here i would suggest that we also should invest more in uh, uh, in quantitative social science so we can actually avoid unexpected results of uh, of our actions essentially what we should start doing is we should start run models to see to run different ideas for how to get the situation better uh, and see whether there is any nonlinear feedbacks that come around and, buy, and bite you in the behind. So we need to get uh, on board uh, general public, uh, then uh, opinion influencers. It's not necessarily uh, people who work for New York Times, but more uh, social uh, media influencers. Uh, scientists uh, should be a part of that um, mix. We get, we get, we should get a professional. Uh, politicians and put pressure on the elites. Remember that the current situation is unfortunately quite uh, lucrative for the 1%. So the 1% has to be convinced that in the long term it's untenable and that it is in their long term best interest to give up some wealth now uh, rather than lose everything uh, in some future.
0: Right. No, absolutely. Well, a couple of final questions, Peter. The first is the benevolent dictator question, which is if you were in charge of the world or the United States and you could do anything you wanted, what what would you do to head off this catastrophe?
2: Well, first of all, I would uh, give um, hundreds of million dollars for social science research, and put uh, several teams actually on building uh, models uh, and testing them with data. That would be. We would uh, then use those models to actually understand what uh, specific actions we should take. Uh, of course. That okay, that's
1: spoken spoken like a member of the social science elite.
2: Yeah, well, I'm not uh, <laughs> not really elites. Uh, elites are the ones who are at Harvard and. Uh, in uh, Stanford, you know? okay, counter elite. <laughs> yeah, counterly. yeah. All uh, right. Uh, I understand that, but this is the without doing this, uh, we would be, um, uh, you know, like uh, blind uh, uh, people, uh, right, uh, uh, in the dark room. So, uh, so that I think that's a very it's a necessary, but of course it's not uh, sufficient. There are certain things we can do. We can use the. Uh, previous uh, success stories. So let's go and take a look at what happened 100 years ago in the United States. So uh, I think many of the recipes that the Deal actually um, fixed uh, legislatively will work quite well. Of course, we live in a very different society. So we should, uh, we should take that into account. But we should uh, give workers uh, power to organize. Uh, that they have lost uh, since 1980 or so really badly. And, and and right now there is uh, a strong movement, labor movement, that uh, from the grassroots, so it should be helped. Okay, and we should increase the taxes uh, on the wealthy. I mean, um, back in 1960, their top incomes paid 90% of tax, uh, and the society was doing quite well, and the wealthy were doing quite well also. Now, I'm not suggesting 90%, but at least 50%. Let's split, the, uh, split it up. And then we should start creating, uh, using the, uh, this... Mo- okay, we, we, I am an uh, uh, anti-war person. I study war uh, so that uh, we can learn how to abolish it. We should cut the military budget in half. This is going to pain, paint me with a brush, but I, I think that is what we should do. All right, and so um, extra money from the uh, wealthy and uh, taxes on the wealthy, the military budget, uh, they can be used to be to do some things that everybody talks about and build infrastructure, that's all good. But we also should uh, find, uh, either do some kind of a basic uh, minimum income or find um, uh, jobs, uh, you know, uh, like during the New Deal, right? Uh, so especially if you should find jobs for all those overproduced English and history, actually history, yeah, we should fund history just because historians are producing useful knowledge. Uh, we need Yeah, well, that. that's we part, need those of data.
1: part of Nick's philanthropy is hiring me.
2: Yeah, I see. <laughs> So we should do it on a massive scale. By doing this, we first of all, we hire historians, archaeologists, uh, and, and others. First of all, they will start churning out useful data for, for the scientific program. Secondly, we take them out from the market of counter-idiots, so they are not now feeding their radical movements.
0: And one final question. Why do you do this work?
2: I'm a scientist. I am motivated uh, by the search for truth. And the only way to get at it in a reliable manner is by doing old-fashioned science, where we propose theories, translate them into mathematical models, and then test with massive amounts of data. That's what I enjoy doing. And that's what I get my kick out of life. I love it.
0: Well, Peter, thank you so much for being with us.
2: Good, good meeting you all.
1: I think a lot of people might come away from this conversation with uh, Peter, Nick, and think, oh, that's all very theoretical, Cleodynamics and all that. You can look for patterns in history and Make predictions, but really, when you look what's when you look at what he's talking about, when you read that book, the specificity, and you look at what's happening now, this really speaks to the moment. When he talks about the wealth pump, uh, how we turned the wealth pump off uh, with the New Deal and had three decades of broad-based prosperity and relative stability, and then in the 1970s we turned that wealth pump back on through the neoliberal revolution, through market fundamentalism. This is what we've been talking about for the past few years on the podcast, right? That Correct. you can go back to the mid-late 70s and see that, that divergence between productivity and wages and see this $50 trillion upward redistribution of wealth and income, and we see the results in the popular miseration, the, the miseration of huge segments of the American public and in the extreme wealth that has been accumulated by well people like you and the anger that it's generated in counter-elites like me. And what Peter is telling us is that this isn't unusual. The, no. This has happened many, many times throughout history, and it doesn't end well. It has political and societal consequences that are often catastrophic.
0: Yeah. And this is, this is why when, when my rich friends tell me I'm too lefty, I tell them that I'm actually what stands in between them <laughs> and the true left, right? That, that they, should, they should be not crawling, not walking, but running towards increasing their own taxes and paying folks more. Uh, because in the absence of that, the chances are not good that the cushy lives that we all lead will continue in the same way i just think it's so obvious
1: and you know a lot of them understand that from uh, the uh, bunkers they're buying they're there yeah. no, <laughs> right exactly <laughs> you you know that's happening i look it's a, it's a, it's a terrifying prospect but how can you live through this moment and not see it and it's and it's not just you know the this total disintegration of uh, our political system. Uh, how half the country doesn't trust elections anymore. How the House Republican Caucus can't even follow its own rules to elect a speaker. Uh, how. Trump is out there threatening to uh, round up and imprison all his political opponents and media critics how how you see all this disintegration the violation of norms uh, we keep crossing lines again and again you see all that at the same time we have, you know, in the moment, the war in Ukraine, we have uh, what's happening uh, in Israel and Gaza as we're recording this. And I got to tell you, this summer, Nick, sitting here in Seattle, where we had a, a rather pleasant summer, we were like the only corner of the United States that did. And watching. The, the rest of the world literally burn, and we're incapable of addressing this crisis. All these things that we know are real and are happening and need action now, and we're incapable of doing it because yeah. our civilization, it's falling apart.
0: That's right, because a few uh, powerful elites are blocking the way. Right? Yeah, and, yeah.
1: yeah, and the way I feel it, I don't know if you ever saw it, Nick. It's old. It's like late 50s, 1960 film, On the Beach. Yeah. Um, the, the the storyline being that that the, the nuclear war has happened and it takes place in Australia and uh, the Northern Hemisphere has been wiped out and they know that the radiation is drifting their way and in a month or so, they'll all be dead. And it's about that that month or so just waiting for it to happen. That's how I felt this summer, sitting here comfortably in Seattle, watching the rest of the world fall apart. And I'm okay right now. I'm okay right now, but it's, it's coming. It looks like it's coming, Nick. And, uh, so it's just up to you as one of the pro-social yeah. Yeah. elites. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah. I'm on it. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So do yeah. your job, Nick.
0: Yeah. I'm working on it. Yeah.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: Well, that was, that was a fascinating conversation. It's never, uh, never joyful to talk to Peter, but he is smart. <laughs> he is.
1: It's, a lot of it's, interesting things to say. It is, so. it is a fascinating book. Uh, again, uh, the book is End Times, Elite, Counter-Elites, and the Path of Political Disintegration. We will provide a link in our show notes and we urge you to buy it at your local independent bookstore or if you have to, because it's just more convenient at that big online monopolist that we shall not mention.